Hello and welcome to Nutrition Counseling Unscripted. My name is Kath Morley, pronouns she and they, and I am here in Mi'kma'ki, the traditional land of the Mi'kmaq known today as Nova Scotia. And with me is... Hi, I'm Carol Townsend, pronouns she and her, and I'm here on the traditional lands of Fort Wayne First Nation in Northwestern Ontario. A couple of things I wanted to mention. One is if you hear some weird sound in the background, we're in the midst of a big snowstorm here with high winds and I won't be able to edit out the wind sound. So um, no, I did not put in sound effects. That's just good old nature outside the window here. And second of all, Carol, we wanted to mention how absolutely thrilled we are to get such positive feedback to Nutrition Counseling Unscripted. We've had written and uh, an email and comments posted to the YouTube site and, and, and some really lovely comments on LinkedIn. So, so thanks, everybody. And we'd love to hear more from you. We'd love to hear what you'd like us to talk about. We've heard for some, from some people that what we're talking about is quite different from what they hear in their workplace. That's kind of wonderful, actually, for us to post different points of view. So we are very open to hearing from everyone. So uh, you can email us at C and C, that means C-E-E-A-N-D-C, nutrition at gmail.com. Okay, Carol. Roles, responsibilities, rituals, and routines. So for our listeners to orient them, what we thought we would do is I'll give a brief overview. These terms, not unusual to any of us, of course, but they came out of my doctoral research and it became really clear that these four R's are they're paramount in everybody's life. And the fifth R that we want to add is the relevance for us as dietitians who provide nutrition counseling. So I'll describe them and then Carol will chime in when she has an example to share and then we will discuss together the relevance. Carol, sound good? Sounds wonderful, Kat. Okay. All right. So roles, responsibilities. So this is me turning into mini lecturette for just a moment. Okay. I'm not turning into a lecturette. That's personification. I will offer a lecturette. There you go. Okay. Roles, meaning that in every household, there will be there will be different roles and this is you know if you live in a household of one well then you're it for everything but but let's say there's more than one person in every household there will be somebody who has the primary feeder role and then other people who are the people who are fed i don't have a really good word for that people have suggested to me feedy which i think sounds terrible so the people who are fed <laughs> so the feeder is a person who knows every everything that's in the house regarding every speck of food, whether it's in the fridge, in the cupboard, in the freezer, what's left over. They know every pot, pan, utensil that there is in the house. So if they want to make anything, they see something or they have an idea or they read a recipe or somebody mentions something, they know whether they've got everything they need to make that happen. Whereas the other people are surprised sometimes that meals have shown up, Carol. Does that sound familiar to you in your household, for instance? Yeah, I, I love the role of the feeder because they're also the person that says, what would people like to eat? And everybody, you know, if you're, if you're the one who's being fed, just get to say, oh, whatever you feel like. Yeah, or <laughs> don't bug me with this question. <laughs> exactly. So it's, yeah, they have a lot of responsibility, right? Just yes. To know what yes. people like, what is available to be made. Oh, my gosh. Yes. So you have made a really important point about responsibilities. And that is what you just said, that their feeder has this responsibility. Of course, you know, food hits the table or the couch or wherever people are eating. 
over the sink. No, nobody eats over the sink when there's more than one. Well, maybe they do. I don't know. Anyway, uh, <laughs> the responsibility being that the feeder has a responsibility within the household to know what everyone, this is a tough role, to know what everybody's preferences are, not only what they like to eat, how they like it prepared, how they like it served, and the added bonus feature of trying to create harmony amongst everybody who's there. And I'm hoping there are some of you out there who have this responsibility in your household going, yeah, I know exactly what that's like. And I know how hard that is and how emotionally draining it can be when people don't agree or you're trying to balance one person off against the other just because because either you've had they've had a tough day or you want to be nice to them or whatever, right? They're, they're, they've been ill and you want to make something nice for them. So the, so that's a tough, tough role. And I don't mean, to, do I mean tough, Carol? What, how do I mean? It's a difficult it's a, role because I think sometimes for the feeder, they're so busy worried about everybody else in the household that their preferences and their likes might actually get put to the side because they're so worried mm. about making sure that everybody else is happy and going to eat. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. I'm going to use the word tough because I think it fits. It's it's complex and taken for granted. Okay, so yeah, that's I think role... that's underrated when say you say taken for granted. I don't think people who don't have a feeder role no. do not realize how much work and how much effort the feeder actually puts into putting a meal yeah. in front of people. Yeah. It is so complex. It is so complex. And then of course, Carol, there's the joy and wonderment of dealing with garbage and recycling and doing dishes. And I don't know about you, but in my household, sometimes when I've asked for people to take responsibility for that, I have been met with much unhappiness that I'm being, oh, what would be a good word? Uh, mean, demanding, unfair. And so, like, <laughs> grr, when, um, as you say, it's it's huge, huge amount of responsibility and, and mental effort to keep all of that stuff in place, right? So, all right. So that's roles and responsibilities. The feed, the people who are fed, they show up. They show up. And, the, and I don't know, in my experience, when I was married, it always seemed to my ex-husband like it was a, well, not my ex-husband, he was my husband at the time. It's a surprise that it's dinner time. Oh, have you been cooking this last hour? Oh, like, what, is your nose broken? You didn't smell anything? Oh, made me crazy. Anyway, all right, on to rituals and routines. I'll use myself as an example. So routines are those things that we do habitually. My routine is I wake up, I get dressed, I go down to the kitchen. I live in a house with multiple floors. I go down to the kitchen. As I'm walking into the kitchen, I grab the kettle, I go to the sink, I fill it up, I plug it in. I don't know what I'm going to do with that hot water yet. I just know that hot water will be required. And then I look, and then I usually, at this time of year, it's cold now in November in Canada. Well, November everywhere, I suppose, but it's winter in Canada because we know that some of our listeners are not in Canada. So for anybody who's down under, you will know that it's not your winter. It's coming into beautiful springtime. I love to make a large pot of hot cereal. I live with celiac disease, so I throw in everything that I have that's not containing gluten, 
rice, corn, um, you call that stuff that you make delicious cornbread out of, cornmeal. All kinds of seeds and flax and hemp and all kinds of really incredible things. And I love it. I just absolutely love that, that uh, some quinoa, throw it all together and make it in a pot. And then it just sits in the fridge and I scoop out some and I uh, heat it up. Now, what I have to do before that is go and look at my collection of bowls and my collection of mugs. And I have, and I stand in front of my, I have like a, I have very poor storage in my kitchen. So I have an open shelf and I, and I stand there in front of them and wait for one of them, a bowl to speak to me and say, today's the day you should pick me, Kathy, because it's just suits my mood. They look different. They have different shapes. And I just pick the one that speaks to me. And the same with the mugs. That's my routine. My ritual is how I put together my hot cereal. So I've got it in the microwave. I've got some, sometimes when I'm really spoiling myself, um, I buy some cereal cream. Oh my gosh, delicious. Uh, so, but otherwise I have milk heating it up and then I open my wonder cupboard which has got all the seeds and dried fruits and stuff and I decide which combination of things I'm going to put on it today so that's my ritual of assembling my hot cereal bowl it's particular to me no one else in my family does it but that's my ritual Another ritual would be like we there's just right at the moment myself and my and my eldest child here. So we have, you know, cooking, cooking, cooking goes on. We're it's pretty lovely actually to have somebody who shares in cooking equally. We have a lot of leftovers in the fridge. So we'll decide, you know, it's what we call a get your owns night. So sometimes what happens when we're getting our own meals, it coincides. And when that happens, we go, "Oh, are you ready to eat right now?" Oh, great. Let's sit down and set the table and eat together. And so we have a very ritualized way that we set the table, right? We've got, we've got cloth serviettes that we use. We've got our cutlery that we use. We've got the way our glasses, like what we use for water glasses, what we use for wine glasses, what kind of wine we drink with what, and so on. That's all highly ritualized. That's just a day-to-day -day thing that happens. But often we think about rituals as being related to special occasions. Carol, we were talking about the fall harvest festival that happens yeah. about this time of year and the rituals associated with with big events like that but i was thinking like when you and i were chatting earlier and i think about those rituals or those celebrations right and the rituals around it there's so much expectation because usually if we are going to have a fall celebration it's not just us and maybe not just our immediate family especially now with some of the covid restrictions you know being loosened we have extended family come in. We have huge expectations of what it is. And as that person who is the feeder wants to use this, or I should say wants, many times we use this as a way of expressing love and caring to those that are coming to their home. Take special practice of recognizing what foods is it that people are coming that I know that they really, really love. I know that so-and-so is coming and they'd love it if I make a dressing this way or that I put carrots and parsnips together. There, there's a lot of care, a lot of love that goes into this. And with that, a lot of expectation. So I think about in my home, we don't sit around the table very often. When we do have one of these celebrations, in my mind, I have a place of, this could be beautiful because people are going to come in. We're going to connect over food and we're going to be able to share. We're going to, I'm going to get caught up with the extended family that I don't get to see on a regular basis that I'm just not in contact with. And when it doesn't happen, 
there's a lot of disappointment. And I'm sure I'm not just the only, no. only person out there who has experienced this, yeah. where in, in our minds, we have this peace. And as you were saying earlier, there are these expectations that this is how it's going to go. And then people come in, they scoop up their plates, they go to the living room, they turn on a TV, and they sit there and get ah, on the no. TV. And then they pick up their plates and drop them in the kitchen. And they're gone. And it's like, what happened it's to... not Carol's drive through here. No, no. And so I, I, I can feel for feeders, right? Mm-hmm. Being one myself. Knowing that, you know, these expectations don't get met. When we bring this into nutrition counseling, being aware for individuals what their expectations were and why all of a sudden eating might be really difficult for them or preparing food might be really, really difficult for them. Because if you have this expectation, I mean, now this was a big celebration but you think about somebody who every night prepares a meal for a family is an expected prayer meal you have a family that comes in they sit down wherever they sit they're either distracted by a tv or on their tablets or something like that mm-hmm. no conversations they finish eating whether they put their plates in the kitchen or wherever it needs to be or they just leave them and then you have a feeder sitting there going like well, what was the point yeah and it makes so much sense to me why as dietitians we need to be so aware and find out from the people we're working with, what's eating like in your house? Yeah. What role do you have? Yeah. So we're going to get into that, of the relevance of all of this for, for nutrition counseling. And in half a shake of a lamb's tail, as they say, um, I don't know who they are. I used to ask that when I was a kid. Who are they? My mom and dad never knew uh, who they were. <laughs> but something important about that you just said, which reminded me about another element of responsibilities which is, and you mentioned it as love. And I think that the, the the nugget, if we can use that word again, that we borrowed from, from episode two, the nugget here is that when a person's in a feeder role, the underlying message is, I have made this food for you. I'm offering it to you. The expectation, the social expectation, as you mentioned, Carol, is that the person who's being fed will take that food, actually put it into their mouth. Food sociologist Claude Fischler calls that incorporation, incorporation, which corps being the word for the body in French. So you're literally putting the thing that is offered into your body to become your body. This is really powerful stuff. So that's the shared responsibility is I'm making food, I'm offering it to you and with love and hoping that you'll trust me. And then the other person receives it and puts it into their body as a show of, I love and I trust you. I think about this all the time when I eat out at restaurants and so on, and how how important this is. You know, the server and the restaurant patron role, the same thing is going on. But that goes on in our families all the time. Does that make sense, Carol, that, that responsibility? Definitely. Because, yeah, you trust. And, I mean, people who are receiving food from you trust that you're making things that you're going to enjoy, that you're going to like. Yeah, and I'm not going to poison you. Exactly. (laughs) I was at a a conference on the weekend about uh, peripheral and central nervous system effects of celiac disease. And one of the speaker person who lives with celiac disease was discussing going to visit his in-laws. And he said, several times that's happened and I've been glutenized while I was there. I'm not sure if my mother-in-law is doing it on purpose. And, uh, and so I thought, I call that gluten poisoning. But, you know, can you imagine his looming thing over his head when he visits the in-laws? Is she going to poison me? 
And she knows she's doing it because she knows it makes me sick. Isn't that awful? Well, that's awful. But I think about there's yet another pressure yeah. put on the feeder, right? Yeah. So if I don't know what, or if you tell me that this is what your allergy is or what you can't have, I now either have to talk to you and figure out exactly what that means, or I need to go back and do a whole bunch of research and being the caring person that most people are, I'm going to be worried the whole time. Like, what if I mess this up? Right. And, you know, Carol, a flip side of that, I've heard many people say, because, you know, I chat with people that I meet at knitting and book club and stuff like that about what I do. And uh, I've had people tell me, oh, yeah, I, I had a friend who we used to get together all the time to share meals and stuff, but I don't have her over anymore because now she has, you know, she's been diagnosed with these food allergies or gluten sensitivity or whatever the issue was. And it's too hard for me. So we're not friends anymore. And I think, oh, my gosh, that's heartbreaking. Right? Like yeah. my routine of feeding guests would be disrupted because of your dietary restrictions, restrictions. and you're not worth me upsetting my routine. Yeah, you're not worth the effort. No. Aye, wow. aye, aye, aye. Okay, so that's important, right? For us to think about people who are that person. They've been diagnosed with whatever, their their diets have been altered or have been recommended to be altered for whatever reason. That's a that's where there's a place to start in terms of you know, finding out that they have friends who they're not worth the effort for that friend. Like, what's the message there? Exactly. And I, and I think about clients and people that I work with who have different dietary restrictions for whatever reason, and them not wanting to be the bother. Yeah. And, and even being able to broach that with the person who they're going to see. Yeah. You know, and so many of them have said, it's like, well, I'll just go and I'll just kind of pick around and I'll, I'll figure out something. So as not to be the bother. And I think that's such a juxtapose, eh? because yeah. as you're telling the story of this person of, well, I'm not going to have you over because I think you're too much effort. And yet you have this other person who is so wanting to accommodate and not disrupt their routine, disrupt their rituals of what they usually do. I'm really trying to find a common ground, right? So yeah. that we yeah. can enjoy food together. Yeah, it's so complicated. Like it's, it kind of um, makes me, it just makes me think. Yeah, it takes a lot of work. And and as we started off saying that this whole feeder role, it does extend beyond the household, of course. It extends, you mentioned that with regard to the fall harvest meal, right? And the, that kind of work that goes into that and, and wanting so much for people to have a lovely time. And I know for as somebody who lives with celiac disease, that I am cognizant all the time of, am I putting two people to trouble? I'm going to a, a board meeting this Saturday at a hotel, and the menu is turkey, gravy, dressing, potatoes, and vegetables. And I'm thinking, I don't know, I can't, I, I'll probably be able to eat the vegetable. <laughs> so Wait, Maybe the turkey, if there's depends, nothing on it. Depends. Right. If it's it's like a real turkey that they roast in an oven without stuffing in it. But if the stuffing was in that bird, then I can't. Right. So here's me. I always offer I'll just bring my own food like I do it all the time. So, again, we just have to think about, you know, that's another routine of mine. I just think ahead where I'm going. What are they going to feed me? Will I be safe? And I always carry food around. And I think many of the people I meet who live with celiac disease do the same thing. They uh, carry food around because you just never know when you're what you might be fed and you have to be careful right and anyway okay so relevance for dietitians and and dietetic students who are learning how to do nutrition counseling 
what what um, let's let's think about roles, responsibilities, rituals, and routines. And we've discussed them. And you've mentioned expectations. So what other uh, aspects of relevance are there to consider these four things when we're engaged in counseling? Yeah, no, I was just thinking about you and I had talked about earlier. This might be where you were going. Is the idea of when somebody is not able to participate? Yeah. Due to an illness. Yeah. And again, it sometimes goes back to expectations of the person coming in who is ill or of the people who are there of what is expected of that person. When, when we go to these gatherings, mm. knowing that, as we talked about, there's that love and trust, mm. that food is that basis piece of. And it's not that the person who's ill doesn't trust, but they just may not be well enough. Yeah. And so how else do we show? Yeah. So this is a really important point. And when I worked earlier in my career in cancer care, this came up all the time of family distress that was created when the very thing that we talked about, these shared responsibilities of one person offering, another person eating, that had been lifelong, lifelong routines that, that you might have have a couple who've been together for 30, 40, 50 years. One of them becomes sick. The offering of food, which has been so routinized over time, so ritualized over time as well, when they can no longer participate in it. And it's heartbreaking for everyone. The, what I, In my experience, the people who are sick just feel terrible, but they also get mad because, like, leave me alone. I'm doing the best I can here to eat and not really realizing how how routinized this is and how the the routine is wrapped up in emotional well-being, the sense of stability, the sense of constantly expressing, I love you, I love you too, you know, that kind of stuff. And it's gone and not to return. It won't come back. And how much that, and people then experience grief about everything that they've lost in that relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Lost the comfort of knowing, right? Right. You know, and moving into that unknowing place of not going to come back. Mm-hmm. So what is the new, I hate the term, but the new normal going to yep. be now yep. in this relationship yep. if there's that stress, there's that loss for both people? Yeah. Uh, my my uh, One of my brothers passed away in 2019 with ALS. And that's for anybody who's experienced ALS, either in a work setting or in a family setting, you know that eating is one of the things that goes away. As the disease progresses, people can no longer swallow. And the efforts that went into trying to find things that my brother could swallow, knowing how unpredictable it was, is today going to be a day where he can swallow or not? And when will be the last time he will swallow? And the fear of that, like how long am, how long have I got before I, before I can't swallow? So these are things that, you know, for a couple like my brother and my sister-in-law who loved to plan special meals, go to the farmer's market in their town, buy products right from farmers, go home, cook it. Like they were, they were really kind of my ideal of a couple who works together (laughs) to share feeding responsibility. Um, I always envied them, that relationship. (laughs) And, and then he couldn't participate in it anymore. And she still talks about it. He's been He's been gone now a couple of years and she still talks about how much she misses. That was their routine, right? That was how they lived their lives was that way. It's really tough. Very difficult. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we're talking about the person who's being fed, like in, like you said, for your brother and his wife, mm-hmm. they kind of shared the role. But what about when the person who does the feeding becomes ill yeah. and is no longer able to feed the family okay. or doesn't have the energy yeah. to feed the family? Yeah. 
So important things about that that I've learned, Carol. One is, so my PhD research was on women who are seriously ill with families to feed and how much those women hauled themselves up from extreme fatigue and from napping to make sure meals were ready for their family, even though they were seriously ill. I've had people tell me about friends who, who put, um, you know, like summer lounge chairs in their kitchen so that they, between like setting up the next stage of making whatever, they could lie down in their kitchen and do you know what I mean like to just because it was so exhausting but it was so important for them to continue in their role as the food maker because as people told me in this study it's all I have left right I look in the mirror I don't look the same anymore I can't I don't have the physical energy or sense of wellness to get out to do anything to go shopping to the grocery store to go on holidays to go to the rec center to meet my friends for book club you name it whatever people ride my bike whatever they used to do they just don't have it anymore they cannot do it but the only thing they do have left is making sure their families get a meal and so what some of these so I used to what's called a progressive development design so you you interview people and then you take what you learned from those people and you ask the next person about this is what somebody said. What do you think about it? And um, what I learned from that, as somebody put it, it's a family engaging in we're all we all know this isn't reflective of the truth that everything is normal but we'll all pretend that it is that pretend that it is like a group pretend because it's so important to the person that they love who's the person who sped them all the time so that's one thing super important the other thing that's really interesting from uh, the associate food sociology literature is that when the feeder is and this is on a binary and I apologize because it's a gender binary that's not the way all people live but for instance that's how this research was done so when the person who was the feeder is female the person who's male will get all kinds of support from friends and neighbors when the when the man the male is sick that woman will not get support or she might get for a little bit but not for long for not for as much as a man would get so it sends a really important message about who's who's Whose responsibilities are these anyway, in terms of whose roles? And if you're like me and a a proud feminist, that should make you a little bit angry. That that there's this gendered um, roles and rituals and responsibilities. But we as dietitians can't assume that we know. Like Like you were saying, Carol, you have, well, let's get right back to episode one. Open up space create space for people to share their narrative. So maybe we could talk a bit about that, about how you don't presuppose anything. Yeah, I I think that's such an important piece that you're talking about there, Kathy, that idea of many times we come in with those assumptions. It's like, yes, it's the female, whoever that role is within the family that does it, but it's not necessarily. Right. And it's recognizing that a society puts a narrative on that as a female, you should want to do the cooking and it's your responsibility to look after your family by doing it. And I think about all the people that I work with that don't know how to cook. Yeah. That yeah. they didn't grow up in a household where food was prepared. More and so, more these days too, right? Where uh, there's such convenience, food and takeout and so on, abundant. Exactly. And yeah. so how is that when they come into my office and sit down and talk to me and then they have somebody like myself who I was very lucky. I grew up in a household where there wasn't fast food. There wasn't a lot of restaurants in the little town I grew up in. So yeah. we, my mom didn't have a choice. My mom cooked. Uh-huh. You know, and even, even when my mom couldn't cook, my dad tried. And uh-huh. bless him, he tried. Yeah. We love him for it. 
But, you know, to have to sit with somebody like myself who all of a sudden is, you know, a nutrition expert, knows my little air quotes here. Yeah, I do here, see your air quotes there, yeah. And have to try to tell me that I don't know how to cook. And I praise my clients when they tell me that because that must be so hard yeah. to admit yeah. that this is something very difficult. It's like, okay, well, we can work around that. But I need to understand that and I need to have an environment that's open enough for you to be able to honestly say to me, that's not going to work for me. Carol, you have just said something that has brings up another topic that has to do with dietitians and their connection with food. And maybe we can save this for another day. How has it come to be that somehow dietitians feel it mm, not scientific enough or not respectful of their education enough or something related to it's it's below them to talk about food they're far more intelligent than to talk about food and how did that come to be and what do we think about dietitians with food at the center of what they do yeah no I, I think that's a really interesting in the fact that in order to prove that we're a valid profession. Yeah. We go right to science. Yeah. Where I think about, I interviewed for a job and they asked me about best practice and how do I prove best practice? Yeah. My response was, wow, I used to tell you that I would go read a a journal article and tell you all about the double blind study and this is what we're going to do. And I'm realizing now what I need to do is I need to go talk to other dietitians. I need to go talk to people working in the field, figuring out what is it that's actually working in their communities. Because that is the science that I think as dietitians we really need to be bringing forward Mm. is what's working in the communities. I, using community knowledge. So let's let's be really clear here. You're not saying let's ditch the science. You're saying that's a piece of what we need to look yeah. at. Recognizing who's sitting in front of me as the person seeking help, knowing Carol. that some of the science has been done not in that community. Oh yeah. Oh so oh oh yes. That, like, right. So I cannot, when yeah. So I just can't take that science from that journal and just say oh that fits everybody. Mm-hmm. recognizing that yeah there's some valid pieces to that mm-hmm. but I need to really know the people and the community that I'm working with and what's going to actually to work with them for them to tell me what's going to work for them yeah you know Carol you're reminding me of very many years ago oh I don't want to say before you were born but maybe <laughs> uh, certainly in my working time my working lifetime there was a time when people who were seriously ill in ICU did not get fed because it was thought that adding nutrients to their body so so expecting metabolism of food would be too much for their body to cope with on top of the injury that they have. So nutrients were withheld in the idea that it, it helped the person get better. Can you imagine? So half of the people, this is in the 80, early 80s, half of the people in ICU died. Because we know now about major catabolism that happens with these traumatic events. Well, we know about malnutrition in hospital, right? How many people come in and are already malnourished? Well, I'm thinking about people in car accidents or people who have a serious burn. Let's not feed them because it would be too much metabolically. And so it was not a good idea. So they didn't get fed. And then, happy days, things happened where people did get tube fed. And I remember looking at the literature at that time. This is in the like mid-80s. And I worked in cancer care with people who had head and neck cancer. I'm going to say that again, head and neck cancer, because it kind of comes out as this one word, head and neck. And we were starting to use tube feeds a lot. And the literature came from large cities, large healthcare complexes in large American cities. And the most common reason that they use tube feeds 
was gunshot wounds in young men. And I was working with, look at your face, it's all scrunched up. And I was working with older adults who were previously fine until they developed, but they'd been on a bit of a, you know, a decline because they couldn't eat anymore. So they were not young men, young health, previously young, healthy men who were stopped by a, by a gunshot wound, right? It was a totally different situation. And, and so we didn't have, like, literally, we didn't have the literature to draw on. So exactly what you said, what do you do? You start talking to people about their experiences. I think that's super important. I, I know that's super important. Yeah, you're, you're right. This is, a, this is a larger topic that I think, you know, yeah. we'll, we'll chat about because yeah. I think as dietitians, we need to be able to trust we have the knowledge yeah. and being able to trust that knowledge that we know when we assess the situation on a base by base. Yeah. And Carol, we also have to learn what doesn't work. Yeah. So it's not, and we don't do a very good job at sharing what doesn't work. And you've heard me say before that rather than best practices, I think we should share worst practices. Here are the things you should never, ever, 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 ever do. <laughs> right? And I, I, and I say that somewhat tongue in cheek, but not really, because I think you know, as you say, when you consult with peers, that's what I hope people will share and feel really good about. Like we tried this and it really didn't work. But as you say, you could go to a next town and it could work really great in that community. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I love when you and I first started talking. Mm -hmm. we, talk, we were able to talk about all the things that it just wasn't working. Yeah. Because you learned so much more from what doesn't go well. And you remember that. So it's like, okay, how do I do something different? And yeah. what would different look like? Yeah. And so finding friends to play with is so important. And one of the wonderful developments I think that's happened in the world and in our profession of dietetics is that we do have virtual communication channels and we can connect with people all over the place um, about about the very things. But I mean, if, if the internet didn't exist, you and I would never have met. That's wild, eh? <laughs> um, so anyway, okay, on that happy note, Carol, Next time, we're going to talk about food in dietetics and how it relates to nutrition counseling. I can't wait. Yep, yeah, sounds wonderful. Okay, bye, Carol. Bye-bye.